Well, uh, this morning we are launching into a new series, uh, and we're going to be looking at a particular part of the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know if you are an avid lover of the Old Testament or not so much. Uh, I have to admit, honestly, I have not always leapt out of bed and been like, come on, I need to read some more Old Testament. Uh, I I used to have a commute for about 25 minutes, 30 minutes every morning down to my office when I worked in business. And on January the 1st every year, I would have a New Year's resolution to do the Bible in a year. Anyone ever done Bible in a year? Um, I, I used to do it by audio format because I figured like reading it whilst driving down the freeway would be unnecessarily dangerous. Uh, but every like January the 1st, it'd be like Genesis chapter 1. And I'm like, I'm all about it. This is good. And then, you know, Genesis chapter 2 and you go through and it's like, it's all feeling good. And then sometime in January, you, you know, click into Exodus and the grand stories of Moses and like, this is good too. And then sometime though, in the deepest, darkest depths of winter, I, in England particularly, it is the darkest depths of winter, uh, you get to like books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Anyone ever read all of those books all the way through? Yeah, it's quite a thing, uh, isn't it? It's quite a thing. And some years I would, I would kind of push on through. And other years I'd get kind of stuck, honestly. I'd get stuck on the strange names and, and the wars. I'd get st- stuck on the seeming genocides and these weird behaviors and stories and things that I couldn't quite relate to. And, and I would be like, actually, I, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I don't know how this fits into God's big story. And if I, if I persevered, I, I'd get eventually to Psalms. Praise the Lord for Psalms, right? And then I'd get, if I really did well in that year, I'd get to Matthew, you know, and then you're into the New Testament. It's like, oh, good. Okay, we can do this bit. But, but if we're not careful, right, the, the Old Testament can almost feel like something really different. It can feel like a different God, a different religion, a different story. Can can leave us thinking, like, would it be better if we just, like, limited ourselves to like the last, three, last quarter of the Bible, the New Testament. Wouldn't that be easier? But um, I would suggest that might be a bad idea, a very bad idea. Because what I discovered when I finally went to seminary to become a pastor is that the, the whole Bible is one beautiful work of God. It is a narrative story of God's involvement in humanity. And that the Old Testament and the New Testament work together beautifully to tell the story of a creator, but also of a savior. In fact, if we don't have the Old Testament, actually our view of the New Testament is very limited. I don't know if you've um, ever tried to pick up a Netflix series or something like that, like halfway through. Uh, sometimes Laura will say to me like, hey, I'm watching this series, you should come and watch it. And so I'll jump in at like episode six. And you know when you try and do that, you become like the most annoying person in the world, right? Because it's always like, what happened? Who is that person? What did they do? Where did they come from? You, know, you have all these questions that you don't know the answer, and so you can't really get into it. And that's a bit the same when we just take the New Testament without the Old. But at the same time, we actually need the New Testament to help us read the Old Testament properly. Because if we don't, we don't really know who the center star is. We don't really know what it's all about. Um, I don't know, any, anyone like prepared to admit that they're like secretly into like murder mysteries, like dramas? Thank you, you're brave people. Right, anyone prepared to admit that they like um, Agatha Christie? Come on, three, one, 
one, two, two, three. <laughs> right. So my, one of my, my guilty pleasures in life is Hercule Poirot. Anyone, Hercule Poirot? He's like this sort of Belgian detective. He's like, oh, my name is Hercule Poirot. And, and you watch these sort of grand old dramas. And for the first like hour, you, you, you're trying to figure out someone got killed and you don't know who. And, and you're kind of trying to piece it all together. And it's not till like right near the end when you finally figure out like who done it and you find out because Poirot gets everyone in a room and he's like, aha, it was Professor Colonel Mustard with the candlestick or you know, whatever. And, and you, you realize that he's put together all these clues and you go, ah, oh, I knew what was happening, but really you didn't have a clue what was happening. But if you're really nerdy, you can then go back to the beginning and you watch it again and you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, it kind of makes sense now. And that's a little bit like, a little bit like what happens when we, we properly read the Old Testament because we read it in light of Jesus. Right? We read it in light of its central character, even though he's not named in that particular way. We read it backwards, looking at it, going like, oh, all of this was what God was doing to get us toward Jesus and salvation and redemption. And so we need, we need Old Testament and we need new. And because of Vintage, we're, you know, we are a word and spirit church. We take the Bible very seriously. We thought this year it would be great to spend a little bit of time in the first three quarters of the Bible. In the part that Jesus memorized, quoted, used all the time, his Bible 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so um, we're going to do a little bit of fun. Hopefully we're going to fall in love together a little bit more with some of the quirky bits of the Old Testament. But we thought we'd start in a nice, easy place, because it's the summer, and the air conditioning is only just beginning to work, so we, you know, we're not kind of maybe ready for it yet. So we thought we would start with a nice, simple book, which is near the beginning, uh, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. Anyone, anyone ever read the book of Ruth before? Great. So what I I'm, I'm want to ask you is if this week you could read uh, Ruth with me. Is that okay? Like the whole thing. Now, before you freak out, 12 and a half minutes. <laughs> 12 and a half minutes is what I need. And in fact, I don't even need 12 and a half minutes from you because we're about to read the first quarter of it together. Is that okay? So eight minutes. Anyone got eight minutes this week that they would be prepared to offer in the reading of three chapters of a book of the Bible? None. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, guys. I, I feel, I'm, glad, I'm so grateful to be back. It's good to see you. Uh, well, we're going to read it, and there's so much that, that I think we're going to find of God's goodness. So why don't we open our Bibles? If you've got your Bibles, always good to have with you at Vintage. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to give you one. Come and say hello, and I'll dig you one out for you. Uh, obviously, you can get it on your phone or device, or you can get it on the screen. But let's read um, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters, why would you come with me? I'm going to have no more sons. Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they became to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The word of the Lord. Thank you. So we are faced with a little family. Um, The dad is called Elimelech. uh, The mom is called Naomi. And they have two sons. And they're living uh, in Bethlehem, which is very much at the heart of Jewish culture. If you know a little bit about the Christmas story, you will have heard of Bethlehem before. But they are faced with a famine. And not just a famine, this is a really, really dark period in Israel's history. It's the period which is detailed in the book of Judges. It's somewhere around 1200 to 1000 B.C., And in this time, there was no king. Instead, there was this refrain that went throughout the land, which we we read in scripture, which just says this, like, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Like, basically, it was chaos. Everyone did whatever they felt like, whenever they wanted, with whoever they wanted, and anarchy ruled. And maybe directly because of this, or maybe indirectly, a famine has come to afflict them. And in the middle of it is this dad, Elimelech, And Elimelech's got a choice. Will he stay? Will he be in the heart of God's people? Or will he go? Now, being from from Bethlehem, he is supposed to be someone who's like all up for God. 
Like, he is supposed to be, Elimelech, the kind of guy who, as if there was a kingdom come, would be there before anybody else and have his hands in the air worshiping before the band played, right? He is supposed to be the kind of guy who does like 24-7 prayer and signs up for the 3 a.m. shift, right? He's supposed to be the guy who's first on the plane for the mission trip. This is the kind of guy Elimelech is supposed to be. This is where he's from. This is his heritage. This is his identity. But yet, when famine hits the land, he isn't going, oh great, enforced fasting, come on guys. He's going, I'm out, I'm out. Uh, Where is God? What is he doing? I'm running far from here. Now, I would imagine that some of us in this room know a little bit of what it's like to face those kinds of difficult decisions. I don't know what it might be for you. I don't know if you've ever faced disappointments, famine, hardships, financial challenges. I don't know if you've ever faced relational breakdowns, stresses, anxieties. I guess the truth is that we all do face them, don't we? Sooner or later, every single one of us will come into contact with some sort of pain and suffering. And when we do, like Elimelech, we are faced with a choice. We are faced with a fork in the road. Will we turn toward God or will we turn away from God? And we're gonna see this morning that there are two ways, the way of Elimelech and the way of Naomi. The way of stepping away from God, far, far away, or the way of stepping toward him. So let's have a look at them. The way of Elimelech. So we read in in verse one exactly what happens. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now you might not know it, but that is an extremely shocking statement. Moab is not just another nation. It's not just the place with better food. Moab is the place of the enemies of God. I don't know what the equivalent would be. I was trying to think of it this week. I was like, okay. And so he went to live in Canada, which is the enemies of, no, that doesn't really work. People are too nice in Canada. I was thinking if you were in Europe, it'd be like they went to live in France. The, uh, that, that would work. But right, Moab is not a good place. And it's not in fact just that Elimelech goes to Moab to just hang out there and eat food. It actually says that when he's there, he renames his sons with Moabite names. And if you spotted that, like this is not just a convenience thing. This is a full-fledged defection to the enemy land. Elimelech is rejecting God, turning his back on him. Disappointed, maybe angry, bitter. What is clearly being communicated here is, God, I don't trust you. God, I don't like you, and I am going to take matters into my own hands. I am out. I'm out. I don't want to do it your way anymore. He steps away. Now, we, we don't know why exactly, and we were speculating. We don't know the backstory for what has happened in Elimelech's life. We don't know if it's like unanswered prayers, where he's prayed and God just hasn't come through for him in the way he wanted I don't know if it's like wrong expectations. Like, hey, God, I love you. You're supposed to provide for me. Like, why is there no food? Like, obviously, you're not good anymore. 
We don't know if it's like insecurities, doubts, fears. We don't know where it came from, but we do know the outcome where he goes, well, I just can't trust you. I just don't trust you. I'm going to take things into my own hands. We're not told why he abandons God, but we are told that he absolutely abandons God. But the problem is, is that it doesn't work. His desire to take things into his hands, to have food, to survive, actually is the very thing that leads him towards death. When he goes to Moab, maybe he does eat the first meal or the second meal, but what you read just a little moment later is that soon he dies. And not just he dies, but his two sons die as well. This is a tragic, it's a desperate ending. It's a pretty much the same echo of what happens to Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, like, hey, you should eat the fruit. Yeah, we want to be in charge. We'll eat the fruit. And by doing that, saying to God, you're not in charge, we're in charge. What happens to Adam and Eve happens to Elimelech, and maybe you might even know it from your own story, is that as he, they unplug from the source of life, walk away from him, we see that slow and steady walk towards death. You know, it's easy, isn't it, to like judge someone like Elimelech? You're like, man, I would never do that. I would never walk away from God. Like, I'm all up for Jesus. But actually, when I thought about it this last couple of weeks, I had to think, yeah, there's been times in my life when I have felt exactly like him. You know, and as, um, when I was a teenager, I was so blessed. I got to live in Hong Kong in this incredible uh, youth group, and we used to go and be involved in communities and things all over Southeast Asia. And when I uh, graduated high school, I went to live in South Africa and lived in Alexander Township, which is a uh, very challenging area of Johannesburg, but just saw God do incredible things. And after that, I amazingly somehow snuck into university, to business school, and had an amazing time. I mean, didn't do a lot of studying, but I had an amazing time. You know, we, we got to plant a church into the student nightclub. The floors were a little bit sticky, but everything else was kind of good. We, we, I got to be like the president of the Christian Union, which is kind of like the head of the campus Christian fellowship. It was like, God can do anything. Like, God is so good. Like, life is an adventure. I was all about it. And somehow I just about graduated. And when I was graduating, I got a, a phone call from a, a pastor in the south of England. And he said, hey, look, you know, we, we've heard of you. And um, we're trying to plant a new church into a really challenging neighborhood in our city. And we would love it if you would come and move here and move onto this estate, this neighborhood, and take some of our young people and, and see if you can maybe plant a church there. And I was like full of it. You know, I was like full of faith. I'm like, yes, God can do anything. I can do it. God can do it. And my now wife, Laura, was living in that city. So it was like, this is a good move. Uh, and so I went. And, you know, over the course of a year, we saw God do incredible things. We saw healings. We saw people come to faith. We did this, saw these outreach projects through sport and music. And we were, we were ready. Like, we were going to see this church, like, bloom into life. But almost like without warning one day, like I got this message, actually we're not doing this anymore. And it wasn't from some of my team, it was from the person who'd hired me in the first place. Hey, we've decided not to do this. Actually, we don't, we don't need you here anymore, you can go. I was angry. I was upset. Like, it, it, there was no explanation. There was no backstory. It just kind of vaguely sounded like I must have done something wrong, but no one would really tell me what had happened along the way. 
And I was, I was bitter, you know, sometimes in those moments when you feel like you've been really hurt by a church, by a Christian leader, like that's kind of the worst, isn't it? And I was like, this is really horrible. In fact, it wasn't until many years later when someone was prepared to tell me what had really happened, which was that the mayor of the town and some of the other church leaders in the city had said, actually, there shouldn't be a church there. And they put pressure to basically stop there ever being a church built on that estate. But in the moment, like I was so disappointed with God and I was faced with that choice. Like, am I going to go back to church? Am I going to plug in again? Am I going to offer myself in leadership? Or am I going to run far, far away? And I ran. I ran. I went off to work in business. I occasionally turned up at church. I sat in the back row. I was angry and upset and hurt. I didn't want to be there. I certainly didn't want to help in any way. I too know what it means to like run far away when I felt hurt. I don't know, maybe this morning, just even one other person might have experienced something like that in their life. When something small or big has caused you to say, God, I do not trust you anymore. I do not want to be in your plans. I do not believe you're good. And so I'm going to take control. I'm out. Maybe you came to L.A., with the grand dreams of seeing the city transformed or the industry, you were so on fire for Jesus. But it just didn't work out. It didn't work out the way you thought. Maybe like your search for the ideal family or the ideal spouse has just not worked out the way you wanted it to. Maybe you've been hurt or disillusioned in a church. But maybe you are realizing or you have realized that it's not leading to life, but it's actually leading toward death. Well, the good news is that is not the only way to respond in challenge. And what the author of Ruth wants us to see right at the beginning is that there is a different way. And it is the way of Naomi. Now, Naomi is not in a good place either. It would be fair to say when you pick up the book of Ruth, she is in bad shape. She's lost her husband She's lost her two sons. She's in a foreign land. And what that basically means is she is pretty close to destitute. She has no income stream. She has no line of a lineage for her family to continue. She has nobody to provide and support her. She's, life is probably pretty much, in her view, at, at the end. But yet, and this is a little spoiler alert for the next eight minutes of your reading, God is about to do something astonishing. God is not finished with Naomi. In fact, what he's about to do is take famine to harvest, poverty to prosperity, barrenness to birth, widow to wedding, foreigner to family, purposelessness to purpose. That's what God's about to do. And what we're going to see over these next weeks, that even in pain, even in disappointment, even in unmet expectations, even in unanswered prayers, God wants to transform her world. And in the middle of it, at the heart of it, at the start of it, is a decision. And the decision is, will she turn toward God or will she turn away from him? And what we've just read this morning is that where Elimelech said, actually, God, I'm out. Naomi said, God, I'm in. God, I'm in. Now, we should be honest here and say that this is not a moment of grand happiness and faith for Naomi. Right? This is not a moment where I think she woke up and was like, I've got a great idea. I know how to fix all this. I'm going to walk back home. It's going to be wonderful. Let's all go. 
Like, that is not how this story is portrayed. And we know that because, did you notice that Naomi also changed her name? Naomi means pleasant. Pleasant is a lovely name. Naomi changed her name to Mara. Does anyone, know, anyone spot what Mara means? Bitter, right? You have to be in a pretty bad place to rename yourself Bitter, right? This is not Naomi going, God, it's okay, now I've decided I trust you again, we're going to do this. This is like basically Naomi going like, well, I'm here. And God's saying, great, Naomi, brilliant, we're going to see redemption. And she's going, well, don't call me a Naomi, call me bitter, right? Not a happy thing. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I, I read people like Paul in the New Testament, you know, like praising God in the middle of the night when chained up in prison, like hallelujah, and when I'm in a dark place, that doesn't feel so comforting, right? <laughs> it's like, what's wrong with you, Paul? Like, where's your, where's, your, where's your reality? I love, in this Old Testament story, the sheer drama and reality of Naomi's situation. She is bruised. She is battered. But she is open to the movement of God. She is open even in the rawness and the ugliness and the pain, she's basically saying, okay, God, I'm in. Whatever you want, I'll give you one more go. This is not cheesy bumper sticker stuff. Like this is, God, I will give you one more chance. I know that the way of my deadbeat husband did not work, and so I have no other option, so I will choose you and go back to my spiritual home. Death by leaving, but actually life, as we're going to see, by returning. Maybe you've experienced that too, I don't know. For me, my, my story took me very far from like church. It took me very far from particularly want to be in any sort of like leadership or anything like that. In fact, I too, Laura and I, we moved to another city. I was a bit like, I've, I've had enough of this particular group of people. I want to be far from them, and so I'm going to move to a different city and see if it's any better over there. And Laura and I, we, we moved into this, uh, this town. And uh, one morning, we were like, well, we might as well go to church, I suppose. And, and we, we found the sort of big church in the center of the city. And we, we went in. And we're like, okay, let's see if this is any better. And it wasn't. I mean, it was not. I, I don't, no disrespect to this particular wonderful group of Christians, but this church was dying. You know, you can tell sometimes when the church is dying. This church was absolutely dying. And so I went home and I actually emailed my old pastor and I was like, hey, this is bad down here. You should plant a church down here. I know they don't, you don't kind of plant a church there, but maybe you should at least do something over here because it's really bad down here. Maybe you should plant a church. And do you know what he replied? Yes, you should plant a church down there. <laughs> and, and I was not up for it at first. Like I was like, no, I don't think so, God. I'm, I'm out still. But just little by little, like God started to work in my heart. He started to work in my situation. I could start to see that he was weaving a plan. And over the course of a couple of years, God healed and transformed my life bit by bit. And he started to build the church in this dying place. And over the course of like five years, we watched the church birth and bloom into life and people come to faith. And here's what I realized. I realized that the darkness and the pain and the fear and the anxiety and, and the brokenness had not been outside of God's love for me. It had not been somehow separate from God's great love to redeem me and use me and transform me. 
that actually God was beginning to unfold a beautiful plan which was towards my destiny, which was towards my calling, towards my purpose. And I wonder, you know, even this morning that some of us, if maybe it's just one or two, like we're in that dark place. We're in the place of like, I don't think God really loves me anymore. I don't think I really want to have anything to do with him. I've got so many questions. I've got so many doubts. Like basically, I don't really want to go any further with him. But yet God is urging and inviting you and saying, would you just give me your yes? Would you just step in and not step out? And we might be sitting there and going, well, honestly, I don't really have a lot of faith left to see God do anything anymore. I'm so disappointed. Maybe it'd be better if someone else who had more faith than me. Well, the truth is, actually, we are reminded throughout the Bible that having a lot of faith is not a prerequisite for anything. <laughs> In fact, only a mustard seed is enough faith. A loaf and some fishes is enough for God to do something. I don't know if you know that. What God actually says to Naomi is, let me work in your showing up and let me do something amazing. Let me work in your yes and redeem you. Let me work in your, trans in your small choices and breathe new life into you. And you know what? I think for Naomi, it did not look like her 10-year master plan. It probably didn't look like she expected it. Her life did not work out as she probably envisaged it. But yet, Naomi's name goes down in history because of what God does with her. We can always say yes, even to God. And so, uh, you know, as I close, you know, we, we're starting a new school year. Some of us literally have just arrived for school. Maybe other of us going back to school or with teachers, the year is just kicking off. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're like, actually, my life is great, Ben. Like, I am, I am blessed up. All is fantastic. I don't need anything else. I'm fine. But maybe there are just a few of us who, who know what it means, even now, in the middle of it, to feel that sense of questioning, doubt, and disappointment. Maybe life just has not quite worked out for you as you wanted it to. Family situations career, finances, hurt by the church. Maybe you are pretty much ready to say to God, I'm done and I'm out. But here I want to tell you this morning that God is not done with you yet. God is not done with you. And he is waiting, yearning, longing for your yes. There's a beautiful story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, this son who goes off to a distant land, demands his inheritance, lives, parties, runs out, finds himself in trouble, and eventually chooses to come back to the father. And what I love about that story so much is it's as the, the younger son is returning to the father, it says that the father is waiting. He's looking out to the distant horizon for his son to come home. I don't know if he's been there days. I don't know if he's been there weeks. I don't know if he's been there years, but he is yearning that his son would come back home. And I wonder even if this morning, like the Lord is yearning, longing, waiting for you to come home, longing for your yes, so that he can start to work a plan of redemption and healing. Just waiting for that tiny decision, that bitter, angry, even moment like, God, I'm angry and I'm hurting, but I will give you my yes so that he can start to do something 
absolutely amazing. And I don't, I don't know what your yes looks like. Maybe it's like, I've been hurt by church. I said I was never going back. But I'm going to give this one final go at being in a community of Christians. Maybe it's even I'm going to be in a small group. And so this, year, this, this fall, I'm actually going to be known and talk and care for other people and do life with other people, even though I've been hurt before. Maybe it's like, I've got so many big questions, I don't know what to do, but maybe I'm going to sign up for Alpha. And I'm going to bring my big questions in the fall, and I'm going to wrestle with God and find out if he's still there and loves me. Maybe a few of us, it's, it's about our marriages, and we've got this broken sense of our relationships with our loved ones just falling apart. And a yes might be to sign up for the marriage course and say, actually, I'm going to show up with my spouse for the marriage course and see if God wants to save and redeem my marriage. Maybe it's opening the Bible, doing the Bible in a year. Maybe it's volunteering on a team. I don't know exactly what your yes is. But I do know that God is waiting to do something beautiful with your life this year.